0: Welcome to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church Melbourne. I don't know if you've noticed this, but these days there are lots of contentious things about the Christian faith that while they may have slipped under the radar in a previous generation, these days just seem aggravating. We're face to face with an issue like that this morning in the words of Jesus himself. So I thought to be on the safe side I'd just skip over the Bible passage and we'll go to our closing hymn. Uh, better not. See, awkwardly, I don't think we can do that and in any way claim to be Christian. Because ultimately the words of Jesus that we're up against this morning are, I think, the defining words of our movement that mark us out, for instance, as different from your average Buddhist or follower of Baha'i or different perhaps from just a a generally spiritual person. I met someone like this the other day with, with no fixed convictions about God but very keen for me to know, he said, that he was in fact spiritual. The words we're going to see from Jesus today offer something very different to that in a way that's often either overlooked or ignored or perhaps deliberately rejected. It's an issue as I look back that, I first encountered myself as a kid in primary school when my social studies teacher took us through a book called Many Paths, One Heaven. And I vividly remember it. And the message that no matter what world religion you came from, we are all on a path up the same mountain, all with the same aspiration to get to the top and discover somehow the same God waiting there. There's the other famous image, of course, of the blind men and the elephant. One feeling the trunk and saying, it's a snake. The other grabbing a leg and saying, no, it's a palm tree. The guy with the tail arguing that it's just a rope. All you see with different parts of the picture equally true but none complete. All of us grappling perhaps with part of the truth about God, all partly true, but none of us grasping the underlying reality. Now those are nice images. Those those are kind of good metaphors of what it's like to grapple with mystery in the absence of true Revelation. And and they work if you're looking at kind of generic religion. The trouble is for us, right from the very start of John's Gospel, we have been dealing with the idea of a heavenly revelation in the person of a single and unique figure who is, according to John anyway, the very word become flesh. God himself dwelling among us. Which might be okay in the abstract, but now here in chapter 14, the rubber hits the road in a way that is undeniably challenging. The claim that Jesus Christ somehow uniquely exhibits God And that to know God, we need to look somehow uniquely at him. Although I do want to cut to the chase and point out the thing that is most surprising in that. Because, of course, the problem is to say that sounds so arrogant. The point of what Jesus is saying is actually the very opposite of that. Because the the astonishing thought is that if you really want to come to know the God of the universe, the place to look is at Jesus, his son, on his knees washing the feet of his disciples as we saw a week or two ago. Or even more confronting, if you want to see the nature of God, look to Jesus lifted up to die on a cross which we'll see in the succeeding chapters. So hold that thought. We'll come back to it. First, let's dip into the context of what's going on. There are just 11 disciples now because Judas has gone off into the night. The others have just heard the worst possible news because everything they have been working towards, their expectations, their hopes, it seems, is coming unstuck. Judas is on his way to organise the grand betrayal and Jesus knows it. And Jesus says to them, I'm going away. Now he's been hinting at that for a while. In chapter 13, verse 33, he said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What did he mean? Again in verse 36, Peter says where are you going? And Jesus says where I'm going you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterwards. And of course they've got no real idea what he's talking about except that it seems deeply troubling. Which is why now Jesus says to them at this point don't be anxious just keep the faith let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me which you might observe is the first of a string of very similar couplets where we'll notice what Jesus says about the father he says equally about himself The point is, even though they're still maybe thinking that Jesus is going to go into hiding or that he's going to leave the country, the reality is he's going to explain that he is going to his father and the way he is going to do that is through his betrayal and his crucifixion and his death. And in doing all that, he says he is preparing a way for them to be with the Father as well. I'm going ahead of you, he says, to prepare a room for you. And there's plenty of room for everyone. And he says in verse 3, I will come back again, by which he means, of course, his resurrection, and take you with me so that we will be together again in my Father's house the heavenly kingdom. Now again, this is an idea that is absolutely baked into the framework of John's Gospel. The big question up to this point, the question on everyone's lips is, where does he come from? And the answer is, he's come from the Father, specifically as the word from God. And now he's going back again opening the way for us. And can I say that unlike the idea behind that old book, Many Paths One Heaven, which pictures us all climbing up a mountain in the search for God, the biblical gospel has it exactly the other way around. That God sends a rescue mission down as the word becomes flesh as Jesus says that he has come from the Father and is now going back to the Father and making room for anyone who wants to join him. Which again puts us in a very different place to every other mountain climbing religion that has us trying to climb our way upwards and do our best to figure things out for ourselves. In the person of Jesus, God has come down. That's John's claim. And now it's time for him to go back again and hold open the door for us. And that somehow what's about to happen in his betrayal and his death on the cross will throw open the doors of heaven and put out the welcome mat. Interesting why up to this point Jesus has said, you don't know the way to where I'm going. Now he says, they will. And you know the way to where I'm going, he says. They know, I think, because he's just told them about his betrayal. They know because he's just told them that Judas is on his way to do what Judas is on his way to do. Which in God's incredible providence sets out that one road, the one path to a place with his father. Except, of course, that Thomas, who later goes down in history as doubting Thomas, doesn't get it at all. And he says so in verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Which then triggers those famous words from Jesus, the awkward words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. With the implication, you see, that the only way ever to be put right with God is through what Jesus himself is about to do. In the next few chapters of John, Jesus is saying exactly that. Now, it's not just Thomas. Next, it's Philip who pushes back maybe with a little bit of frustration. Verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. Just give us a glimpse of God. Now, friends, I wonder if you have ever had something of the same longing, maybe for some kind of confirming experience of God, some kind of mystic inner peace. There are whole religious traditions caught up in the quest for that kind of divine vision. And I know maybe some of you have had an experience like that. But look, nice as it is, the point here is that you don't need an experience like that to know God. Here's where Jesus clarifies his point unambiguously in a way that I think speaks equally today. How can you possibly say you don't know what God is like? when he's been walking among you for the last three years? How can you say, Philip, that you need some kind of extra feeling or experience when God has already thrown himself open to be known in the person of his son? I'm just going to collect together on the screen in front of me, I hope, the thread from verses 7 to 10. Look what he says. If you had known me you'd know my Father also. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I speak are not on my authority, but His. In other words, know me and you'll know the Father as well. See me and you've seen the Father because I'm in Him and He's in me. Hear my words, you are hearing the words of God Himself which, of course, is why John explains to us later on, he's been at such pains to record in these pages what he's seen and what he's heard. So people like us can catch a glimpse as well. But again, that only amplifies this uncomfortable claim that goes to the heart of what Christians who believe actually do believe that knowing the true God isn't just a matter of what we imagine him to be like and it isn't just a matter of personal preference and it isn't something that's unattainable unless you have a mystic experience but it's just a matter at least for guys like Philip and Thomas and Andrew and John who were there at the time of opening their eyes and opening their ears and following him on the road to sacrifice in Jerusalem and standing back to watch what happens. And so, perceived arrogance and all, we are left with these awkward claims, a Jesus who claims to be the truth in a world that says there's no objective truth, there's just whatever truth we make for ourselves. The claim is that this road to the cross, the road they call in Jerusalem Via Dolorosa, the route Jesus is going to march at the point of a Roman spear. That is the way Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, make us room. Loads of room, he says, loads of forgiveness and mercy at his divine expense. Which again has got to undercut any sense or attitude of smugness in the kind of Christians who like to claim that they've got the truth that everyone else is missing. Because in a sense, it's an awful truth. It is a costly truth. It's going to cost the disciples as they follow him in spite of the promise and the reassurance he gives them in verse 13 and 14, which we'll pick up next time, to follow him is costly and humble and even humiliating. For now, I want to close with some words from English Bible scholar Tom Wright, who puts it this way. He says, though, of course, it's true that many Christians and churches have been arrogant in the way they have presented this message, the whole setting of this passage shows that such arrogance is a denial of the very truth it is claiming to present. The truth, the life through which we know and find the way is Jesus himself, the Jesus who washed the disciples' feet and told them to copy his example the Jesus who was on his way to give his life as the shepherd for the sheep. Was this arrogant? Was this self-serving? Only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus in his own mission and vocation, I suspect, will it be able to recover its nerve to follow Jesus fully in making the claim of verse 6. You see, what an odd thought that we might climb every mountain of effort and aspiration, every mountain of piety, of philosophy, of soaring hymns and majestic buildings, every height even of morality, and find instead that God has met us in the depths of human experience, in the depths of humble service, in the person of this suffering servant. What what an odd thought that at the very heart of the universe you meet the heart of God that is that same heart that kneels on the floor like a servant to wash dirty feet. Friends, if you believe that Jesus is the way, If you have met the Father through him, that is in fact something to celebrate. But that's got to turn you not into someone smug and strident who knows all the answers, but turn you yourself into a humble servant who will give yourself in sacrifice, who will go to astonishing lengths to serve others in thankless ways, Simply because you have caught a glimpse of the heart of God in the self sacrifice of Jesus, his son. That is the road we're on. And if you haven't already, you're invited to join in and step out of it. You've been listening to Scotscast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church Melbourne.